after a week off, we are back in the Gospel of Luke this morning, Gospel uh, Luke chapter 21. Uh, and just as a, a remembrance, because I know our memories can be a bit slow at times, uh, Jesus is in the temple, the temple court, the area outside of the main area, and uh, he's been teaching his disciples about the future. He's been telling them how both Jerusalem and the temple it itself is going to be, be destroyed. And we know that these things happened 40 years later in, in 70 AD. Uh, and he's told them about all these signs that are going to come before those things occur and that are going to come before he actually returns at his second coming. And, and we've been seeing that for the last few weeks. And it's all one speech, but today we're going to see the very end of that where it all comes together. Uh, and, and so the first thing we're going to see today is one more illustration where Jesus points about, you know, before the end, before I return, uh, what, what's going to happen. And then later we're going to read a second passage that we won't read at the very beginning. We're going to read it in two sections today. Uh, and when we get to that portion, we're going to see, uh, and this is where at the end of Jesus' speech, where we, we really begin to see application uh, of everything that we've been learning the last few weeks. Um, and so our first passage begins in uh, Luke 21, verse 29. I'm going to read it out loud. If you will, go ahead and follow along with the Bible in front of you as well. And this is Jesus speaking, or I guess it's the narrator to start. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in a world that is filled with spoken words, and words that are written, and words that are rolling through our minds. And in that world, Lord, there are no words that are as important as your word. Enlighten our minds this morning to hear and understand these passages, and bring change to our hearts and lives as we seek to believe, understand, and apply your word to our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So beginning in the 16th century, every February 2nd, uh, the Germans celebrated a festival that they actually called Badger Day. How many of you heard of Badger Day? None of you, huh? Uh, on that day, if a badger saw the sun, they believed it was a sign that winter would continue for another four weeks. Uh, this superstition was tied to the Roman Catholic festival called uh, Candlemas. Uh, the reformers at that time were very adamant that Christians should not partake in this Roman Catholic superstition. Uh, which is why it's, it's rather surprising that beginning in 1886, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch, many of whom were reformed themselves, began to celebrate Badger Day at Gobbler's Knob in Puxahani, Pennsylvania. Only they used a different animal and they went by a different name as this, this festival. Anyone know what it's called? Look at that. Y'all are brilliant. Uh, so you probably know, right, that this superstition that gets played out every February 2nd nowadays uh, is, is the groundhog comes out and sees his shadow because the sun's out. It means we've got six more weeks of winter. So last month when this occurred, anyone know that he see his shadow or not? See, none of you are paying attention. Well done. Uh, <clears throat> the reformers would be proud of you. Um, 
Yeah, he saw his shadow, which means six more weeks of winter. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but groundhogs seeing their shadow is not a very accurate or trustworthy sign that summer is around the corner. However, in, in this illustration that our Lord gives here, he says, when you go outside and you start to see, you know, those little green buds. I don't know. I, every year when I see those on the end of the leaves, I'm like, oh, yeah, here it comes. Uh, you know, unless it's fake spring, which is a Wisconsin festival, apparently. Uh, anyway, it came up in my research recently. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, not long after that, all the leaves come out. And when you see the leaves, right, you know that it's not even fake spring. It's like real summer is around the corner at this point. Uh, at the the best of all seasons, right? It's just right around the corner. And, and so Jesus wants us to know that when the signs that he's been talking about, when, when those things occur, the things we've been looking at in the previous weeks, uh, then the fullness of the kingdom of God, the return of our Lord, is, is going to follow afterwards. And, and so then in verse 32, it's, it's, it, here's the deal with verse 32. You look at it. Um, you got it before you. It is one of the more difficult verses in all of Scripture to interpret. Um, right? Because it's got that word saying that this generation will not pass away, and you read that, and we tend to think generation must mean people that are born within a certain time frame, a certain set of years, right? Within this room, we've got baby boomers and Generation X and millennials, and I suppose the new one is being called, at least by some, as the iGen, because they've had a uh, smartphone in, in their entire life. They've always, like the iPhone has existed as long as the world's existed in their mind. Um, and and anyway, if you think about generations as simply that way, then you look at that and you think, okay, like all those people have died. How is this possible that this is true of what Jesus has said? Now, it's important to understand this when we're looking at things biblically. The word generation can also be used to describe a couple of different ways. One is to describe a particular quality of people, a wicked generation. A righteous generation. These are terms that we see in the scriptures. If, if that's the case, then Jesus is telling us here that there will be those who oppose the kingdom of God up until the return of Christ, right? There is a, a wicked generation. Or, or the word generation can also refer to just a group of people. The, the scripture often refers to the Jews as a, as a generation uh, that way. And, and if that's how Jesus is using the term, then, then this term may refer to, to the fact that the, that the Jews, right, they're this, this people group who have faced tons of persecution over the years, and, and yet today they still exist as an identifiable people group and, and who we, we really hope are still going to come to faith in Christ in, in masses, right? But, but, but if that's the case, Jesus is saying that the Jewish people are going to exist until the return of Christ. Further still, this generation could refer to those who believe the gospel, God's chosen people, the church. And if this is the case, then he is telling us that Christ's church is going to endure, it's going to persevere, no matter what all these signs we see, no matter how many scary things happen in the world, we're, we're going to see that it's going to persevere until Jesus comes back. And I know you want to know, so which one is it? Uh, I could tell you which one I think it is. I, if you ask me afterwards, I'll let you know. Uh, I will say this, that, that we don't know for absolute certain here, and that's actually okay in this instance, because Jesus' point doesn't get lost depending upon whether you're able to defend that, because Jesus' point here is, is so clear. His point is that these things will certainly take place, and that all his words will absolutely come true, and Jesus will return in everlasting glory. Okay? Um, and then in verse 33, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And, and in this, I hope you hear the echo of, of the verse that we repeat every single week after the reading of the scripture. Isaiah 
verse, or chapter 40, verse 8. If you just say Isaiah 48, it sounds like the chapter 48. Anyway, verse 40, chapter 40, verse 8. Uh, the grass withers, the flower fades. Can you do it from memory? That's right. Now, I, I want you to notice there's a massive significance here between Isaiah 40 and what we just read uh, here in, in Luke 21. Isaiah 40 says, God's word will remain forever. And, and what Jesus just said is, my words will remain forever. And I know most of you that understand that Christ is divine, that's not shocking to you. But this is one of these instances in Scripture where we see quite clearly that Jesus is making a point that he's not just some man, he's not just a religious leader, that he himself is divine, that he is God. And his words have supreme authority. In fact, that's why we know his words are absolutely going to come true. Because he's divine. Uh, of this, Philip Ryken says, of that point. He says, do not just heed Jesus' warnings and obey his commands, but also trust his promises. Jesus has promised to forgive our sins through the cross where he died for our salvation. You see, Jesus has promised that whoever comes to him, he will receive and they will be forgiven. And he has promised to give us everything that we truly need. And he has promised that he will give us the Holy Spirit. He has promised to be with us in all of our troubles giving us perfect peace and absolute rest in him. He has promised to prepare for us a place in his Father's house. And our Lord has promised that by the power of his resurrection, all who believe in him will be raised up from the grave when he comes again to take us home. It's the word of God. Our Lord's words will never pass away. They will indeed come true. Now, at this point, Jesus grabs his attention, the attention of his disciples here, and, and hopefully he's going to grab our attention as well by, by throwing out this, this magical transition word that we see often in Scripture. The word is but. Here's the practical and applicable conclusion of the speech that Jesus has been giving, all these prophetic statements. Are, are you right? So, so we're going to read it. You look back to your passage or back to your, your Bible in front of you, uh, beginning in verse 34. <clears throat> and he says, but... Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Now, before we dig into this treasure trove of Pashas, I, I want you to remember something. I want you to notice something. Do you remember who Jesus is directing this at? Right? Who he's speaking to here from the very beginning. You've got to go back a few weeks. It's, it, it's not the self-righteous Pharisees. He's not in this moment speaking to the, uh, the aristocratic Sadducees. He's not in this moment speaking to the polytheistic Romans. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. He's speaking to Peter, to John, to James, to all the apostles. He, he's speaking to solid, faithful disciples, right? And I know you might be thinking, oh, but Judas is in there, right? But, but as far as anyone else knows at this point, he's a faithful disciple. In, in other words, these, these words are, are very much for you who are walking with the Lord. Don't think these are for someone that's crazy lukewarm or outside, outside of the faith. These is, this is a word for his disciples. Um, Right? So it's very much for us, which is in itself a reminder that there is not a Christian in this room, there is not a Christian on this planet 
who can't fall into sin, even great sin. It doesn't exist. Uh, Jesus here is telling us, if you don't watch yourself, if you don't watch your own heart, you're going to drift spiritually. That's what's going to happen. You you ever go to a beach and... uh, Right? You, you lay down your towels and you go into the water and maybe you're throwing something around, you're talking to someone, you're just out in the water and, and after a while you finally look up and, and you look for your towel and you realize somehow your towel is 100 yards or something like that down the, down the way and you have no idea how you possibly got here. You've just drifted somehow and I've seen a lot of blank faces. Maybe, this is Kansas, right? We don't have a lot of beaches. This is, we're a landlocked state surrounded by landlocked states. So yeah, not a lot of beaches. Um, all right, a better illustration, if, if you're driving and, and say you're messing with the radio or even though you know you should not be doing it, you're texting on your phone uh, and, and you look up and you find, you know what, I have drifted out of my lane, I'm to the right, I'm to the left, uh, one way or another. If we don't pay attention, we begin to drift and that's the way these things happen. It, it's true spiritually as well. If we are not paying attention, we will drift spiritually and that's why Jesus says here, <clears throat> actually not just say here, it's, it's actually in the imperative tense. Do you know what that means when you see it in the imperative tense? It's, it's not just a general statement, but it's an actual command. And so, so Jesus isn't just saying, oh, watch yourself maybe. It's, it's an actual command, watch yourself. Um, and, and, and that's what Jesus says, right? Watch yourself. Jesus has said before, right, that we should be watchful. Matthew 16, 6, he says, watch out for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because if you don't, you, you may drift into their, their wrong way of thinking. That's being watchful of someone else. In, in Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, that's a, a watching yourself, paying attention. The, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith as if those two are connected because they are connected. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. And, and so what's it mean to be commanded to watch yourself? Now, I've, I've tried to put it into one sentence. Um, here's, here's how it goes. To watch yourself is a comprehensive evaluation and correction of our hearts and our minds and our behaviors as we active, actively cultivate faith and, and battle against sin. Now, I, I, I use that word comprehensive because we absolutely must seek godliness in all areas of life, right? You can't just have one area that's like, this one's really getting me. I'm going to focus on this one, but I don't care about godliness anywhere else, right? You've got to focus on them all. In fact, one of the most helpful things in Jerry Bridges, the, the little book, I guess it's a little book, uh, Pursuit of Holiness, is when he says diligence in all areas is required to ensure success in, in one area. Or later in the same book when he says, Without a a purpose to obey all of God's word, isolated attempts to mortify just a particular sin are of no avail. In other words, we we must place our whole self, every area of our life, under the lordship of Christ, not just one area that seems to be bothering us. And again, to watch yourself is a a comprehensive evaluation and correction of our hearts, our minds, and our behaviors as we actively cultivate faith and and battle against sin. And I say cultivate faith here for a very important reason because, well, if if you plant a garden, right, you go out in your yard and you dig it up and you make all the stuff and you're going to plant a a tomato garden out there in your yard, you, you know, right, that you can't actually make a tomato plant grow. 
You can put seeds in the ground, right? You, you, you can't make it actually grow, though. You can't guarantee that it's going to have those tasty little fruits that you pop off and want to eat, and they're so wonderful. Um, it is outside of your power to actually make any plant, even a tomato plant, grow. Only God can do that. Uh, the same is true for your faith. You cannot make your faith grow. Only God can do that. However, you can cultivate tomato plants, right? You plant them in the right area where they're going to get the right amount of sun, and you water them, and you, you make sure they get buried properly. Um, we, when we cultivate, we make sure that they're protected from, from predators, uh, one year, Laura planted her tomato plants. She has this garden that gets a little bigger every year. Uh, and anyway, she went out and she buys the little plants from the store and plants them. And she's so excited. All right, everything's going great. And like two days later, a deer came by in the night and just ate every last one of them. So just these little stubs are sticking up. They just completely uh, ruined them all. The kids and I all laughed heartily. Laura did not. Um, so we've been to f built a fence now, right? We're going to protect this. This is cultivating these tomatoes by protecting it. It was supposed to be this nice rectangle. It turned out to be more like a rhombus. And uh, Craig Klein had to come try to fix it for me best he could. It's still a rhombus, but it has a door on it. Anyway, uh, the, the fence is, is part of this cultivating. And, and we do this with this general expectation, right, that, 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 that our hope is that, that God will cause these tomato plants to grow and to be fruitful. And then the same is true of us spiritually, right? We cultivate our faith. We do these things not because it guarantees it, but because the general expectation and the way it works, the way God shows us in Scripture, is, is that this will grow our faith. But we can cultivate it, right, through the, through the means that God gives us. And then our expectation, again, is just that we have, we grow. Uh, and so watchfulness means that we actively cultivate faith. And the last thing I, I put there is that we battle against sin. Yes, that's a part of cultivating, but it's also a submission to the Lord. Um, and in keeping with this analogy of the tomato plant, it's just like we seek to, to kill and remove the weeds that grow in this tomato garden. Uh, and by weeds, I don't mean dandelions, because I've been down that road before. Not weeds, apparently. Um, but you kill the weeds, right? Because you, you want to remove them. The same way we want to kill sin, mortify it. It's the way the, the Puritans referred to it. Tear it out, remove it from our lives. Now, the reason then that we need to watch ourselves is, is because, as Jesus says, if we don't, we're going to be weighed down. And, and then he lists these three things here. And the first thing that he says is going to weigh you down is dissipation. Be honest. How many of you woke up this morning and were concerned that you might drift into dissipation? How many of you, that's the first time you've ever heard the word in your life today? Yeah, that's a little more common there. Uh, as recent as just a hundred years ago, dissipation was actually a really commonly used word. Uh, at the basic level, it means uh, excessive, wasteful, harmful use of something. It's actually tied to things like drunkenny and gluttony and sexual sins and all sorts of debauchery. It's, it's, it's things uh, squandering money or time, resources of all sorts. It's kind of a wide-reaching term. Uh, if you think about the story of the prodigal son, right, the, the younger brother, when he runs away, he runs away to a life of dissipation, we might say. At, at a deeper level, though, dissipation is when we are rebelling when we will not submit to God and to his word, and instead we just submit to our own hearts. What do I want to do? It's spiritual and, and moral anarchy. It's, it's self-rule. It, it, is, it is autonomy that leads to being extremely and harmfully indulgent. 
And, and this sort of autonomy is unfortunately probably the most beloved idol in the era that, era that we live in today. Um, that's dissipation. And, and so when Jesus, so, so then Jesus is saying, watch yourself or you're going to be weighed down by the sin of dissipation and all that entails. And then he adds to that, you're going to be weighed down with drunkenness. And, and in some sense, this is like a specific example of dissipation. Uh, but he does call it out. Uh, and keep in mind here, Jesus doesn't condemn alcohol as, as sinful. And I think it's worth mentioning that because for some reason the church in, in history has, has just gone off on, on alcohol being evil. Now the scripture never forbids drinking alcohol. And, and what might be actually more surprising is it actually encourages it in places. In Psalm 104, the author is praising God for all these many lists, and it's this massive list. You should go read Psalm 104. It's beautiful, right? He's praising God for the fresh water that comes down in the streams, and he's praising God for the grass and the way it grows for the livestock and for the plants that he gives the man to cultivate and, and for the bread that gives us strength. And he's going on and on and on. And in this massive list, he also thanks God for giving wine to gladden the heart of man. Right there in the Psalms. Uh, also, Jesus miraculously created a fine wine at a wedding celebration. Right? With no, like, don't drink this. I just want you to see I could do it. No, he, he made wonderful wine to be given to the people. The Apostle Paul even suggested his young protege, right? A guy he's mentoring, Timothy, that you drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And, and so while drinking alcohol is not sinful in the Scriptures, <clears throat> The scriptures do, in fact, forbid drinking so much alcohol that you become drunk. Uh, does it in a number of places. I'll give you one. Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Um, right? So, so there's a forbiddance there. That is something that people go to. And here's the thing. When we experience suffering and, and turmoil and all these things that Jesus is saying, remember all these things he's saying are coming, these are the kind of things that stress us out. These are the kinds of things that make us, uh, you know, tempted towards hopelessness and what, what's going on in the world. And if we don't watch ourselves, we are going to be tempted to drown our sorrows in, in alcohol. And here is Jesus warning his disciples, don't go there. You, you watch yourself and you don't, you don't go there. Um, the, the last thing not watching ourselves will lead to, we, we see in verse 34, it's, it's being weighed down with the cares of this life. <clears throat> that one seems a little out of place here, right? Like dissipation, all the chaos and nutsness of that, and then uh, drunkenness, right? And you might think, you know what, dissipation, that's not where I'm at, that's not my issue. You might be thinking, you know, I, I, I'm not escaping into getting drunk, uh, but be honest, are you weighed down by the cares of life? And this is a hard one because it's, it's discernible, right? It's not like I can give you a seven-question list and, and it'll kick out the results for you. But are you, are you weighed down by the cares of life? The, these cares of life are, are just as dangerous to our spiritual life as dissipation and drunkenness. The cares of life are simple things that distract us from God. Things like taking care of your homes. Things like schoolwork or jobs or social interaction. Things that are <clears throat> fine in and of themselves but make which make drifting away from the Lord just easy to do, right? More like that, that beach analogy. You don't even realize it's happening. You just drift. Many of the cares of life can't be ignored, right? Paying bills need to be done. Yards need to be mowed. Uh, your homeowner association will tell you that. Uh, tests need to be taken. All these things in life that actually need to, to actually happen. But we must watch that the cares of life don't grow into thorn bushes choking out our love of God 
and the rest that we find in the gospel. And again, remember the context of Jesus' words here. All these stressful and dangerous things are going to happen. Persecutions and suffering and natural disasters and wars and all these things that we actually see in our news on a regular basis. And, and when we see how ugly sin is in the world and how painful it is personally and corporately, when, when we are so discouraged, we have a, a tendency to, to just escape away, right? To escape in one way or another. We just want to get it. I don't even want to think about these things. Some way to escape. Uh, when life is stressful, where do you run? Right? You have the horrible day, and you just think, I, I just want to veg out. So where, where do you go? And I ask this because, because many in our day run to drunkenness. Many run to pornography. Many escape to shopping or gluttony, romance novels or endless video games or vegging out on sports or the, the false promise of relaxation from just watching Netflix one after another all sorts of entertainments that we, we go to. The, these are cares of the world as well. And Jesus is saying to his disciple, he's saying to you, listen, you're going to be tempted in the last days when you watch the world just not being what you want it to be or hope it to be, not being what it's intended to be. You're going to be tempted to go to all these forms of escapism, but don't go there. Don't do that. Watch yourself. Watch yourself to see if you've begun to go there. These things will not remove the burden. They will only weigh you down, as Jesus puts it. And you won't be ready on on the day of Christ's return, which will come suddenly. Right? Throughout the scriptures, it's explained as, as coming like a flash of lightning, like a thief in the night, or as Jesus says here, coming like a, like a trap, right? Just shutting upon an animal instantly. And when we indulge in these cares of life, we eventually have no time left for God, no time left for pondering eternal life, no time left to even think about the return of our Lord and the way he's going to set everything right. It's easy to just find ourselves discouraged and want to escape. At which time, right, when, when, when Jesus returns, God is going to judge all people. That's the, the point there in verse 35 of our passage. We, we also see it in Romans uh, 14.10, for, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, all. And so then how do we actually watch ourselves. First of all, this, this means being ready for Christ's return. And at the most basic level, that means having faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins through the cross. If you don't have that, you are not ready for the return of Christ. If you, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, do not wait until sometime later in life. Get right with the Lord before it's too late. Do it today. Uh, anyone in this room will talk to you, answer questions, so um, please don't, don't neglect the fact that you have that opportunity if you're here hearing this. For, for those whose faith is already in Christ, we want to watch ourselves to guard our hearts with all diligence. We, we, we protect and guard our hearts by the ordinary means of grace primarily, which is reading and studying and the preaching of God's word. It's also prayer and the, the, the sacraments, sacraments. We also guard our hearts by engaging in fellowship with other believers, people who know you and will encourage you or 
as we talked about at Men's Bible Study this last week, people who know you enough and who love you enough to call out sin they see in your life and to give encouragement when you need it in your life. We guard our hearts because our hearts are prone to wander, prone to drift away from communion with God, and there's nothing greater for the human soul, right, than to receive and to continue in the sweet communion that we have with God. In that sense, are you prepared today for the return of the Lord? Or are you living with your heart weighed down? Is that your everyday practice? Is that just where you are right now? And I don't say that to shame you. I I say that as a means to to watch yourself, right? To, To do these things Jesus is saying here. Are you weighed down with dissipation or drunkenness or the cares of the world? If you are, it's a wasteful way to live this beautiful life that the Lord has gifted us with. And so then, do you see what Jesus says to us in verse 36? You hopefully have it before you still. He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So, never sleep again. That doesn't sound like good advice, does it? Um... Without a doubt, this is metaphorical. Uh, To return to the driving analogy from earlier, when when you get tired, you don't drive well. All right? You fall asleep. Uh, Hopefully, I'm not the only one. I remember in college, a few times driving late and just dozing off and uh, too young and stupid to know I should have just stopped and gone to sleep. But you find you drift either one way into oncoming traffic or the other way into the ditch. Um, and, and, And so we must stay awake, right? Always looking to to see where we are currently, to understand what's before us, to see what's coming around us. We've got to always be looking to see, you know, what have we made idols out of in our life? Looking to see where are we escaping to, escaping all the struggles and the disappointments of life. Um, Are we, is it by clinging to worldly things instead of going to our Lord for assurance and meaning and comfort? And only you can answer that for yourself. Where, where do you escape to? Um, he, he says we do this by praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. We are to keep up a constant habit of prayer for our souls, uh, of speaking with God, asking for strength because we are in and of ourselves weak people. Right? Our strength comes from Christ, though. It comes from the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We are not weak people, but in and of ourselves we are weak people. And so in prayer, we we make childlike requests for our Heavenly Father's grace in our life. Prayer leads us to examine our hearts and to consider our our needs. Listen, prayer is part of watching your hearts, which is so vastly different than our cultural idol of simply following our heart. This means prayer is something that we need to do even when your heart doesn't want to. I think unfortunately most of us go the other way, right? When I feel like praying, I'll pray. And sometimes the greatest thing you need, despite not wanting to pray, is to just spend time with the Lord in prayer. Remember, that's a, a means of grace. In prayer, we seek from God what only God can supply, strength for life, strength for the difficult things we experience in life right now and will continue to experience until the return of our Lord in glory. Now, keep in mind, 
we cannot escape the things Jesus is talking about. We cannot escape the persecutions and the wars and the earthquakes. Not in the sense of them just going away, right? Or a bubble around us and like, oh, it looks bad out there, but we're good in here. Uh, but, but, there, but here Jesus says that we can escape them. And, and what he means is that we can escape the normal response to these things, which again is dissipation and drunkenness and concerns of the world and just distract me somehow uh, to escape in that way. And, 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 he, and those things are only going to weigh our hearts down. Through perseverance of our faith in Christ, we can escape though, right? We can escape responding that way. We can find peace. We can escape the the wrath of God when he comes. And finally, at the end of verse 36, Jesus says, We watch ourselves so that at the end we can stand before the Son of Man. Do you notice the contrast between verse 34 at the very beginning about being weighed down with sin And verse uh, 36 here, where we're called to stand before the Son of Man. Again, embracing dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life will all weigh you down. It's like being handed, you know, one 45-pound weight after another uh, and and realizing at some point there's no way you're going to stand up with all that weight on here. You just can't. You won't. Uh, Furthermore, the image of standing in the Scriptures is this picture of court proceedings, and, and to stand indicated a, a not guilty verdict. To, to stand before the Son of Man, Jesus is who that's referring to, to stand before Christ at, at the final judgment, we, we can do so because through the gospel we are declared not guilty. We are declared actually righteous because of Jesus. Christian, on the last day you are going to be able to stand because Jesus has taken away the sin that has weighed you down. We can stand because we have confidence not in our own good works but in God's unmerited and indelible indelible grace upon our hearts, our whole lives, our souls. Brothers and sisters, in in Christ, let us watch ourselves. This is one of those passages you probably will need to go back later today and and read through again and and think through these things. Um, Really evaluate where you're at. Uh, you know, where are, where are things? Watch yourself to see, where have I drifted to? Look up, look at, look at the beach, right? Figure out where you are. And return to the Lord who graciously always receives us back. Let us pray. Father, most of us would confess in our hearts uh, that we are often weighed down by the cares of life. Sure, there's many others who would say drunkenness and dissipation as well, Lord. In this room, probably all of those things. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom to do our jobs well. And to be responsible citizens and yet to not be weighed down by the cares of the world, nor drunkenness, nor dissipation, nor all the, the concerns as we, we see a world stained with sin looking like a world stained with sin. Lord, we know at your return you will make all things right. We look forward to that. And so let us look to you with hope day in and and day out uh, that we might be lifted up by the, the joy of our salvation each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.